Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The call. Here we go, guys. A-U-N, American Underground Network. The primary reason why the individual citizens of a country create a political structure is a subconscious wish or desire to perpetuate their own dependency relationship of childhood. Simply put, they want a human God to eliminate all risk from their life. Pat them on the head, kiss their bruises, put a chicken on every dinner table, clothe their bodies, tuck them into bed at night, and tell them that everything will be all right when they wake up in the morning. This public demand is incredible, so the human god, the politician, meets incredibility with incredibility by promising the world and delivering nothing. So who is the bigger liar, the public or the god prophet? All revolutions have been led by young people. If you just think of the TV images of whether it's Tiananmen Square or whether it's the uh, revolts in Central America or Europe, it's the young people, it's the college people who are more principled and not locked in and they're not embedded with the government. They are the ones who are concerned about the future because the future is theirs. My research has shown at this point that the future laid out for us may be just about impossible to change. I do not agree with the means by which the powerful few have chosen for us to reach the end. I do not agree that the end is where we should end at all. But unless we can wake the people from their sleep, nothing short of civil war will stop the planned outcome. If the National Collective Consciousness Show with Dee Dee Farrell in Portland, Oregon, Jim Condon Jr. in Cincinnati, Ohio, Steve Harris in Charlotte, North Carolina. Now, live from Evanston, Illinois, your host, Fred Smart. Thanks, everyone. Uh, We are in the midst of a uh, tectonic change politically, uh, socially, uh, and, and otherwise in our world with uh, people rediscovering uh, through through the internet uh, aspects of information about uh, what's happening with our government. Donald Trump has awakened uh, a a new breed of awareness, but we don't have this uh, recognition in the the final analysis of what brought us all together uh, 10 plus 15, 13, 14 years ago. We, the People Foundation for Constitutional Education, the causes of action that were numerous over over a period of of about a decade. Uh, We've had Bob Schultz on, the founder of We, the People Foundation, uh, on several times. Last year, we did about a three- to four-part series of his life story. We hope to get back to that, but it's been about a year and a half since Bob Schultz has been with us on this call. 
there's a lot happening in our world, and I'd just like to draw a parallel with the Catholic Church, not directly related, but it is a petition for redress of grievance. Uh, Vigano, this uh, uh, cardinal, not cardinal, but uh, he was the former apostolic nuncio in D.C., has written now three letters, uh, penned them and released them to the world about facts that he experienced and could document and put down on paper regarding the corruption of the Catholic Church. And to date, uh, the Church is silent, mute, and uh, has not addressed these uh, listing of facts involving evidence of corruption in the Catholic Church. So this is something that we did as a people with Bob Schultz many, many years ago. That's how I met Rose Lear and Bill Lear and so many other wonderful people that brought us all together at the, at the beginning of this call when we all worked not just for Aaron Russo, but behind the scenes we were working for Bob Schultz and We the People Foundation. That's what brought us all together with Aaron's movie, and we're proud to have you back on, Bob. And I know the causes of action you're doing in the courts, we don't expect you to comment specifically about those because we don't want to jeopardize anything you're doing with that, but anything, uh, just to hear your voice and to know that you're okay, it brings people on this call a great amount of satisfaction and cheer uh, that you're still out there uh, and that uh, you haven't given up the fight, the good fight, because uh, yeah, our prayers are with you and our hearts are with you, and, and behind the scenes, uh, your, your angel of a wife, Judy, uh, is, is right by your side, and so many other people have been part of this story over the over so many years. So, Bob, thanks, and welcome back to the call. And it doesn't well, have to thanks. be a long appearance tonight, but uh, whatever we can share in, in goodwill and, and just by, by virtue of just your presence would be very much appreciated. Well, let's uh, get underway. Thank you very much, Fred, and hi to everybody. Um, one of the, I guess, the reason it so much time has gone by since uh, our last visit uh, has been uh, the fact uh, of our of this current case that I have filed against the United States on December um, 14th I think it was 2014 when uh, this all began and so we're now uh, about to enter what, our fourth year, um, and uh, maybe our fifth, uh, fourth year. So it's really tied me up. It's uh, I'm losing a lot of hair. Actually, there might be a, a connection between stress and hair loss. Um, maybe so, but in any event, it's uh, it's virtually round the clock. Uh, just dealing with um, the government uh, on this issue. Um, we um, are doing quite well. Some very good news uh, recently. Um, I'll see if I can summarize for those who may not uh, have very much information about the case. Uh, it's well known, I think, that, that we were on the, the right to petition the government for redress of grievances, a right that is uh, in plain language in the 
First Amendment to the Constitution. That right, unalienable, um, guaranteed, um, is for me uh, larger than life. Uh, I, based on my experience for the last 38 years or so, when I first started, uh, became interested in holding the government accountable to the rule of law. Um, I realized that it is fundamentally a lack of civic education um, in the country that has gotten us uh, in, into this whirlwind that we that you've mentioned, Fred, and that we find ourselves in. Uh, we have, um, we have a law here in New York State, I'll mention. It was passed uh, by the legislature and signed by the governor during World War II. It's uh, Section 801 of the state education law. I'm paraphrasing, but this is very close. What it says is that all teachers of the state will teach all children of the state, in the state, in public and private schools from grade eight on, so over a five-year period. Um, and again, I'm quoting, the history, the meaning, the significance, and the effect of every provision of our state and federal constitutions and our Declaration of Independence. So in other words, according to the law in New York State, uh, by the time each rising generation graduates high school, they are to know, first, there is a state constitution. Most people don't even know that today. Um, and, and what's in these documents, these founding documents? And, uh, how they got there, the meaning of it, the power of them. Um, but unfortunately, here in New York State, I, Judy and I graduated high school in 1957. We were not taught. Our kids and grandkids were not taught school. Um, so think about it. Uh, most people are not anchored uh, to the principles and values how, that our country was founded on. Um, popular sovereignty uh, being you know, key. Nowhere else on the globe, only in America, are the, is the ultimate power in our society. Does it rest with the people? You can't say that about people anywhere else. Uh, so, you know, obviously one of the worst outcomes of this lack of civic education uh, is we have become a people that are entirely reliant upon the electoral process and the judicial process uh, to hold our government accountable. Institutions, 
that are human, uh, that are um, subject to, therefore, to politicization. Um, it was never meant to be this way. If you are familiar, if you become familiar with the historical uh, history of the right to petition, um, we learn that we were not meant to rely entirely. Yes, we need, thank God we elect our public officials. Um, thank God we have a judiciary. Thank God we have separate branches. But we were never meant to rely entirely on those two institutions to keep the government within the boundaries that we have drawn around power. That's why the we find those last ten words of the First Amendment. First Amendment in its entirety reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So there's the first of the fundamental rights that are natural rights, unalienable, that, that's guaranteed by our institution. And it goes on, on to the law, abridging the freedom of speech. Here's the second fundamental right or, the, or of the press. Here's the third fundamental right, an alienable right. Or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble, to get together and say, we're doing here tonight to criticize the government if we want to. That's the fourth of the five rights guaranteed by the First Amendment. And then it goes on. And each of those rights, each of those four rights, have been the subject of Supreme Court decisions. So the Supreme Court has weighed in, and the people have a pretty good idea uh, of their rights and of the obligations of the government under those first four freedoms. But then it goes on, and, and to petition the government for a redress, redress means remedy, for a redress of grievances. That last right, uh, the, the Supreme Court, has not weighed in, has not spelled out the rights of the people and the obligations of the government under that fifth freedom, under that fifth right. And um, why is that? Uh, I suspect... Uh, it has a lot to do with, I don't know, what we might call entrenched power. Uh, 
um, is there a conflict of interest? One might argue that those in power, um, elected officials and, and in the judiciary, that they might uh, frown upon uh, a world in which the people are not totally reliant on the electoral and judicial process to hold the government accountable. They would rather be, be reliant on them. So if the, what do we do? What, what do people do when um, you have a, a vestigial constitution where you have provisions that are, were put there for a reason and were exercised in the beginning, but have become forgotten. Like the emolument clause that we hear a lot about these days. People charging the president with violating the emolument clause because he owns a big hotel in Washington and foreign dignitaries come and stay there. And, and uh, so therefore he, the president, is receiving gifts um, prohibited by the emolument clause. So. Um, but what do you do? What are we supposed to do when the, the plain language of the provision, like the petition clause of the First Amendment, um, has become, it, 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 the meaning has become forgotten. It just hasn't been used a lot. In, in our case, that provision has been used has not been used a lot since uh, around 1836. Well, what we do, uh, what we are supposed to do, is rely on the framers' intent approach. Uh, what was the world like before those words were added? I'll back to that in a minute. Um, who said what while they were adding those words, the debate? And what was the world like after those words were added? So that work has been done. Uh, most notably by Professor Gregory Mark at Rutgers, uh, who wrote a law review article, extensively footnoted, very convincing, <clears throat> and from that work, we learn that if we the people have some evidence that government your town councilman, mayor, county officials, state officials, the federal government, 
if we have some evidence that government has stepped outside the boundaries, drawn around its power, that we can petition for redress of the grievance. We can petition the government to remedy the grievance. And that would involve uh, a statement of the provision of the law that we, we think is being violated, um, the evidence of its violation, and uh, a request that the official to, upon whom that petition was served, they either refute the evidence, offer their own, or cease the violation. And um, what happens if and there's and they are obligated to respond. You may not get what you're looking for, but you get a response and then you go from there and their response becomes known. And what happens if they don't respond, if they just ignore? Um, what happens if your repeated petitions are answered only with repeated injury? I can tell you what the factors, what the early Americans did. It's spelled out in the Declaration of Independence. Declaration of, of Independence is not very long, but three-fifths of it is devoted to a listing of the grievances that they had against their government of the day. And then at the very end of that list of grievances, you know, he, thinking about the king, he has refused to assent to laws. He's doing this and he's doing that. And, and they, meaning the parliament, they're doing this and they're doing that. So it goes on and on. And then at the very end of that list, it says, and this is so key, what proof do we need of the obligation of the government to respond and the fight to a response than, than the words out of our Declaration of Independence? It says, in every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act, which may define a tyrant, is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Therefore, 
what we see is we declared our independence. We nullified the government. We told them, pack up and get out. Why? Because their repeated petitions were answered only with repeated They ignored them or worse. That had been going on for 11 years. Before that, before the end, uh, before the end of the French and Indian War, 11 years earlier than this, um, relationship between the people and the government here was good. The right to petition was exercised. There's a, another law review article by Akhil Amar from, at Yale. He focused on, the, on Connecticut and its legislative history. And he makes the point that in those early days, for our... Uh, government was formed here in America, there is more legislation passed by by the government in Connecticut as a result of petitioning for redress of grievances. So um, without civic education, Rising generations just are not familiar. They just don't are not anchored to these principles. We have today, unfortunately, and as we're witnessing, this is a recipe for disaster. Uh, we have the we are replacing the rule of law has become totally reliant on the electoral and judicial processes. We're replacing the rule of law with the rule of whim or the rule of man. You know, my man or woman is better than yours, etc. Um, and, and this is creating, you know, replacing the rule of law the rule of whim, or the rule of man, as I say, is disastrous, simply disastrous. And, and as we're witnessing, it's, there's a constitutional divide that has developed in America, and it's getting wider. It's, my view, it's probably unbridgeable now. Um, that can only result in a real upheaval. Um, We need to restore the the right to petition the government for redress of grievances. 
not as exciting, of course. It's not as entertaining. Uh, it, it doesn't do as much for the print and, and broadcast media as what's going on today. It doesn't do as much for their ratings as what's going on today. But we need to re we need to restore it. We need to rely, come to rely on it again. Uh, what we've learned, those of you who are familiar with We the People Foundation, We the People Congress, what we've learned, of course, is that individuals in small groups cannot prevail in this regard, that it, it's going to take a, um, that we need to institutionalize this citizen vigilance. We need to make it as much of an institution as um, our political and judicial institutions. Um, those are familiar with We the People Foundation, We the People Congress. We were well on our way, well on our way. Uh, it all started my work holding government accountable started here locally in the town and the county in 1979 we moved to an all county activity uh, an all state activity in 1990 and then in 1997 we, um, we became a, a national organization under the banner of the We the People Foundation for Constitutional Education. And by, not, and by 2002, uh, we had petitioned the government, we had four petitions for redress of grievances that were proper petitions for redress. And signed by uh, tens of thousands of people, and we were petitioning the federal government over its apparent violation of the War Powers Clause of the Constitution uh, by uh, going into Iraq Constitution prohibits the application of the armed forces of the United States and hostilities overseas without a declaration of war. And um, another petition dealt with violation of our of the privacy clauses of the Constitution by the USA Patriot Act. Another dealt with the Absolute, not authority. There's just no authority in the Constitution for a central bank. And so our petition for redress, another petition for redress dealt with the 
Federal Reserve System. We were asking tough questions on these issues, and of course on the on the portion tax on labor, otherwise known as the income tax. We were questioning uh, the origin and operation of of the uh, unapportioned tax on labor. And we were getting no answers. And as time went on, of course, uh, as more and more people were becoming familiar with the situation and seeing government's uh, failure to respond, uh, I presume they, more and more people started paying attention, thinking there might be something to this. In any event, we um, submitted a, a fifth petition for redress. We had become familiar with the legal questions surrounding the federal policy of tax withholding, withholding uh, income taxes from paychecks. And that petition uh, took the form of a blue folder, which contained citations to the law and regulations and court cases, raising very serious, legitimate questions regarding tax withholding. And uh, with that, we finally heard from the government, no answers to any questions, but enforcement actions. First, summoned books and records of the organizations and mine. We took them to court and prevailed. Second Circuit in Manhattan ruled no one has to respond to an administrative directive or order. The government wants the information. They'll have to take the organization and Schultz to court. They didn't do that. Instead, they decided to audit the books and records of the organization, which is which they can do. So for a year, the audit was underway in the offices of our accounting firm in Albany. And at the conclusion of that, um, the auditor uh, found no inurements, found the financial and organizational records uh, to be proper, complete and proper. Um, at the end of, and that was during 2006, at the end of 2006, the Congress 
Well, the Department of Justice and the IRS managed to get Congress, or they inserted a provision in a bill that was breezing through Congress. It was the Tax Relief and Healthcare Reform Act of 2006. So in December of 2006, that bill was passed, but there was a little provision put in there authorizing the Treasury Secretary to prescribe a list of specified frivolous positions. And if anybody used one specified a provision off that list in any IRS proceedings, they could be fined $5,000. So on its face, it's the lawmaking body transferring its lawmaking power to the executive branch, something we haven't given them any authority to do. So the Treasury Secretary then published in March of 2007 a a Treasury Notice 2007-30. And in it, um, they listed all the, the specified, the list of specified frivolous positions was every uh, principal argument. We were seeking answers. We had 538 questions that came out of our truth and taxation hearing held just west of, well, it was held in Washington um, in February of 2002, but he put under oath, government had initially said they would, in response to a hunger fast, to end the hunger fast, they agreed to meet in a recorded public forum and answer the questions having to do with the origin and operation of the uh, income tax. But then uh, after 9-11, they backed out, but the hearing was held anyway, not on Capitol Hill where it was to, where it was scheduled to occur, uh, but in uh, the Marriott Hotel in, in D.C. And experts, constitutional attorneys, CPAs, former IRS agents, and others were put under oath, and they answered the questions um, that the government was refusing to answer regarding the income tax. Um, So the... There were 538 questions spread over 14 lines of inquiry. Each line of inquiry dealt with another subject matter, like liability and the 16th Amendment and so on. So the list that the Treasury Secretary published in March of 2007 had every one of those on his list of specified frivolous positions. And with that done, um, the IRS and uh, represented by DOJ brought an action against the the organization and me um, 
under Internal Revenue Code 6700. That's, that's uh, the abuse of tax shelter section. There's a lot of tax shelters around. Every now and then, somebody will go too far and will and will set up an abusive or illegal tax shelter. And so they sued to prohibit the further distribution of the of the blue folder, the tax withholding, the, the, the blue folder that raised questions. It was a it was a petition that was basically asking workers and independent contractors to uh, turn that document over to their corporate accountants and corporate lawyers and have them check out and answer the questions. The folder um, was not about taxes. It was about the method of collection of taxes. But nonetheless, I, I guess it's been withhold, tax withholding has been referred to as the Achilles heel. Government's Achilles heel when it comes to taxes. Um, so there's a provision of the, of the Internal Revenue Code 7408 that authorizes the judiciary to enjoin or prohibit something in case the action brought against the foundation was to prohibit the further distribution of the this blue folder, this petition for redress of grievances having to do with tax withholding. And 7408 authorizes the judiciary to prohibit documents or to prohibit activity that is, and this is key, that is subject to penalty under 6700, the abuse of tax shelter statute. Funny thing. The action in 2007 against the organization did not, the government did not seek and the court did not issue a, a penalty. But yet they prohibited the further distribution of that petition for redress of grievances regarding the legality of tax withholding. So we got through that. We, uh, we appealed Judge McAvoy's decision to the Second Circuit, and I, where I in Manhattan, where I found myself standing before two of the three judges on that panel, including Judge Sotomayor, who's now on the bench at the Supreme Court having been nominated by President Obama not long after this case. 
And um, you started out starting the oral argument saying, well, Mr. Schultz, so you don't believe people should pay their taxes? I said, Your Honor, there's obviously a mistake. This has nothing to do with taxes. It's whether people should pay taxes. It has to do with the method of collection. But that didn't matter. It, uh, she issued, she affirmed the lower court decision saying only for the reasons found by the lower court. Didn't address the merits, our merits of the, the merits of our argument whatsoever. And we asked the Supreme Court to hear it, and they declined. So there we were at the end of 2008, gone through this process, and to no, to no avail, the blue folder that petition for redress known as the blue folder uh, was prohibited, the further distribution. We went about our business. Seven years passed, well, six years maybe, um, and I received a letter from an IRS agent, the, the same agent whose declaration was the basis of the, what we call the blue folder case, in which she said, I've made a determination to fine you $225,000 for distributing that blue folder in 2003. That's the case I've been involved in now. Um, highlight that I first set out and proved that I derived, they wanted to penalize me personally, $225,000. First, I proved that I received zero income, not only zero income from the organization, but that I personally put in $110,000 into the organization between two, the year 2000 and 2008, that there were $110,000 of unreimbursed expenses that I incurred. And the magistrate judge in a hearing before him in his courtroom uh, got the DOJ attorney to admit that. The judge said, you understand Mr. Schultz will use this or could use this against you in any trial and he said, yes, we understand. But that didn't end. You know, there's a they, they, one would, I would call this, you know, a targeting for financial ruinization. This, I think, was their objective to target the organization, you know, certainly the organization, but, but also me for, for financial ruinization. You would think that would have ended the case. But the DOJ, uh, advanced a new argument. Their, their new argument was 
Well, the organization was Mr. Schultz's alter ego. It was his other self. That, and therefore, all the income derived by the organization is attributable to Schultz. All the income derived by the organization in 2003 was about $400,000. So I had to prove that the organization was not my alter ego, that there's no federal alter ego statute. what the federal government does is they rely on state statutes that deal with alter ego. And there's really no one criteria that determines whether an, alter, whether an organization is one's alter ego. But it's things like, well, this person completely controlled, he completely dominated the organization. The organization did not follow the formalities of board meetings and minutes of the meeting weren't kept and on and on. You get the idea. So I had to prove and, and did show with records, all the corporate records, that there was a board, it was active, made all the key decisions, it gave me, the, the, well, it gave the executive committee and me the authority to run the business day to day within limits. But the judge hearing the case in the same district as the judge that issued the Blue Folder decision. And in the Blue Folder case, you know, to prohibit the further distribution of the Blue Folder, there was no hearing. I don't even know what that judge looks like. He holds court in Binghamton, the other end of the state. There was no discovery. It was just lickety split, <laughs> no matter what I argued, and I think as my arguments conflicted with the trade with the Treasury Secretary's Treasury Notice 2007-30, in which he listed specified frivolous positions. So this case. The Blue Folder case back in 2007 followed that, within a month, followed the government's release, the Treasury Secretary's release of that list of specified frivolous positions. So I sit back and I review this, and it seems to me that that's the reason why um, the judge in my case, even though I was arguing the right to petition and presented the full historical review, why he never mentioned the right to petition in any of his rulings on the case. 
um, just stayed away from it. Never mentioned the right to petition. And then it was the case all about the right to petition. Uh, so here, now, this judge in the same circuit, um, uh, it seems to me that they have to find a penalty because otherwise they have their business banning that blue doctor, that, you know, the blue folder under 6700. Uh, you can prohibit it if it was subject to penalty, but if there's no penalty, it's not subject to penalty, then why are you prohibiting it? So I think they're in a bind, and the judge ruled, um, and I cannot appeal any decision in this current case that I'm in until after this case is over. Then I can take it and appeal any of those decisions in the Second Circuit. So this is a key decision. This judge, no matter all this evidence that is in the record, and the organization was not my alter ego. Um, she ruled it was. And therefore, um, money attributable, a money earned, gross revenue earned by the organization is attributable to me. But I was successful in getting the judge to rule that the the four hundred thousand dollars that the organization, the gross revenue that it derived in two thousand three, was not all related to the blue folder to the distribution of the blue folder, and the and the judge ruled that only that amount, the organization's activity in 2003 related, only that revenue related to the distribution of this petition for redress of grievances regarding tax withholding. Only that amount of the overall revenues uh, can be attributable to Schultz or can he be penalized only for that amount. So I'm going through, <laughs> this, Judy's not here right now, my wife's not here at the moment, but God bless her. Uh, she, uh, she has dementia, but she's, you know, one day she had the presence of mind. She knows, she sees what I'm going through. So she had the presence of mind to come to me one, one day with a bunch of folders in her hand. And she said, will these help you? <laughs> I looked at the folders. And I said, oh, my God, you wouldn't. We had, um, we had so much activity uh, going on, Foundation and We the People Congress. I was dealing with the board. I was out traveling the country. Uh, I was out focusing on a plan to institutionalize citizen vigilance over, you know, to hold the government accountable. Um, and Judy was back here at the office handling all the mail um, that arrived here. 
uh, all the checks, the money orders, even the cash. And her job, she worked it out with the accountant, her job was to um, prepare deposits to the bank. And, it, and she prepared these vouchers as well as expense vouchers. But on the income side, uh, an income voucher uh, <clears throat> was, the, was, a, was for a deposit in the bank. And attached to the voucher were copies, were all of the, um, of course, everything going in, into the bank, cash, money order, checks, etc. But she made a co two copies of all of that, even cash. She made copies of the cash and one full copy of the voucher stayed here. And the other copy of the voucher went to the accountant, accounting firm. And so she did this day in, day out, week in, month out, month in, month out, year in and year out. And I had no idea that she kept, we set the system up initially with Mike Bodine and, and uh, independent contractors, we set a system up um, where people could acquire some of the educational resources that we were uh, producing as we went along. They could obtain copies of the USA Today ads. They could obtain copies of our brochure. They could obtain copies of videotapes of all of our conferences. On. Um, we, we made it possible for people to go online and request a copy of these educational resources, including the blue folder. And we made it clear that if they couldn't, you know, couldn't cover our cost of duplicating and getting this to them, they really wanted the information, they could just request it and indicate they couldn't afford it, we would send it to them anyway. But Judy took care of all of that. And so here were these folders. Um, and there were so many more that she didn't have in her hand, like similar. So I wrote a, a note to the judge. This discovery was long over in, in this case. And I wrote a letter to the judge saying, I've recently discovered this information that is directly related to the question of how much income did the organization derive from the blue folder in 2003. And so she scheduled a uh, telephone conference with, with DOJ and myself. And she asked uh, DOJ about it. You know, I said to her, I'd like to submit this into the record. I'd like to provide it to DOJ and to the court. And she asked the DOJ attorney, what do you think? And, and he said, no, absolutely not. <laughs> so discovery is long over. You know, Mr. Schultz had his chance, et cetera, et cetera. And I just explained, you know, that I had no idea it existed. And my wife 
does have dementia, and but she, she came to me one day. She had the presence of mind. So anyway, the judge overruled DOJ, and um, and so we went to work, and there were seven thousand documents uh, that were related to all of these items, not just the blue folder, but all these other items that that uh, that people requested either online or directly. And and also donations that had they were unrestricted. They they were just in support of, of our overall program. And all the membership uh, we were well on our way to organizing people across the country to institutionalize citizen vigilance with constitution monitors and county coordinators and state coordinators and citizen vigilance centers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there were all of these $25 member, annual memberships. Some people took lifetime memberships. It's, um, and so we assembled all of this, and and the judge gave us five weeks, and we we needed every minute of those five weeks to get all of this information together and delivered to DOJ, and then the court uh, gave DOJ a month to uh, depose, to review the documents, and depose me and ask me any questions. And that deposition was held uh, last month on the 25th of September. And um, uh, and I'm in the process now of reviewing the transcript of that deposition. Uh, but what did all of this information prove conclusively that the uh, amount of revenue, the growth revenue derived by the organization from the new folder activity, the so-called abuse tax shelter, uh, was only $1,901.36. So the Obviously, the, that's uh, that's a long way from two hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. So we're sort of breathing a lot easier around here. Um, so where might the case go now? Um, uh, if there was, it, it seems like DOJ has has agreed to this amount. Um, which means there's no need to send it to a jury. This, this case was on its way to the jury trial for them to determine how much the penalty should be. In other words, how much revenue was derived by the organization from this blue folder petition for redress. And uh, if there's agreement on, that, on the amount, and then obviously there's no need to send it there. And so... My guess is that soon we'll see uh, either a settlement 
war uh, between uh, me and the government or a judgment from the court. Either way, around $1,900. I have drawn up a, a stipulation and have um, said to DOJ that uh, this stipulation, I mean, the, the terms of the stipulation are that I've, uh, I've done nothing, I've broken no laws, I've done nothing wrong, and that by this stipulation, um, I do not waive any right to appeal from any decision that this court has rendered, including this decision about the alter ego issue. Um, and so it'll either be a settlement, you know, or for some reason they don't want to settle. And they've, indic- and they've frequently indicated their desire to settle this case. It's been going on for so long. Um, but if not, then it, then it would have to be a judgment. And either way, uh, I would then be able to appeal the a couple of decisions. One, that the Blue Folder case back in 2000 seven was not fully, fairly, and completely litigated. There was no discovery. There was no hearing. All of our arguments were just simply ignored. Uh, the evidence shows that. And that uh, and that there was no alter ego. So anyway, uh, I know this is all legal talk and difficult maybe for yeah. everyone to follow, but um, I see daylight here in this case. Um, Thank God I, uh, I'm able to, uh, we got the records. God bless Judy. Uh, God bless Judy. God bless Judy. Hey, Bob, while you're wrapping up here, could you share a little illumination on the connection you and we have to Judge Kavanaugh going back? Uh, 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 I know you had some. He was the one who ruled against We the People Foundation in the right to petition lawsuit, ironically. Okay. And here he's, he's uh, the whole the whole world was captivated by this by this controversy yep. over his nomination recently. Right. So in 2004, uh, we were getting nowhere with our petitions for redress, getting no answer. No matter what we tried, and of course the record shows we tried so hard, uh, respectfully so, you know, to to get answers to those questions, um, having to do with the Iraq resolution, the Federal Reserve, the USA Patriot Act, and the income tax. So we decided in 2004 that we would. Uh, test the attitude of the judiciary. And so we had 1,450 plaintiffs coming from all 50 states, and we hired uh, uh, Mark Lane, uh, First Amendment attorney, to represent uh, all but myself. I represented myself and wanted to speak directly to the court and get copies of all the papers and so on. And we had two questions for the court. First, 
isn't government obligated to respond to these petitions for redress of grievances, the proper petitions for redress that we defined that made them proper? <coughs> and if government does not does not respond, then to our repeated petitions, do we not then have the right to retain our money until they do, until there is a remedy or a redress to these grievances, until they answer the petitions? Those are the two questions. And the case went to, it was filed in DC and went to the uh, DC circuit there were three judges, uh, three-judge panel. I remember our oral argument. There we were before Judge Kavanaugh, Judge Judith Rogers, and I forget the name of the third judge. And um, Judge Kavanaugh wrote the decision. He said, that the Supreme Court has twice ruled that government does not have to listen, does not have to respond or even listen to petitions for redress of grievances. And as I'm reading that, I'm stunned. <laughs> so, really? So, he said, the Supreme Court said that in a decision that it issued in 1979 and another one in 1984, five years apart. In the first case, which was uh, Smith versus Arkansas, came out of the state of Arkansas. Second case was Minnesota versus Knight, K-N-I-G-H-T case that came out of Minnesota. So what Judge Kavanaugh was saying, in effect, is a, a legal term called stare decisis. What it means is, if the court, Supreme Court, has laid down a principle of law in one case, and you come along later, and the facts of your case and your argument are the same or similar to uh, the facts and, and circumstances of the earlier case, then the principle of law applies to you. That's what he was saying. That's what Judge Kavanaugh was saying. So what were the facts and circumstances and argument in the Arkansas case? What, I, what I'm about to describe is Judge. Ka what I'm about to say is that Judge Kavanaugh relied on two totally irrelevant cases in deciding our case. In the first case, Smith versus Arkansas, the facts were that the state legislature had passed a law that said. Public employees of this state, you have on-the-job-related, employment-related grievances, 
you must submit your grievances as individuals to your public employer. <coughs> you cannot submit your grievances. You can't form any kind of uh, a union or collective bargaining unit or an association. You must submit them individually. Well, Arkansas, there were some state highway workers who had on-the-job related employment-related grievances, and they formed an association of state highway workers to submit their recommendations for new policy their grievances that would that would correct their grievances. And that case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the court said, in this context, the government does not have to listen or respond to these petitions for redress. That, in, and in Minnesota, the facts were that the state legislature passed a law that said public employees of this state if you have on-the-job-related, employment-related grievances and you want to change public policy or influence public policy, then you must go through your collective bargaining unit. You can't submit your grievances individually. It was quite the opposite of what the Arkansas legislature had said. And in Minnesota, you had professors of state-owned community colleges who had grievances and, and did not want to go through their union, their collective bargaining unit. They wanted to petition their public employers directly. And that case went all the way to the Supreme Court who sided with the state of Minnesota. So Judge Kavanaugh used two totally irrelevant cases. We are not public employees grieving or petitioning over using speech. These these uh, the argument used by the employees in, in Arkansas and Minnesota, they were arguing they had the right of free speech and that the government was supposed to listen to their free speech. Speech aimed not at, their grievances did not have to do with violations of the law as our grievances were, you know, were. Mm -hmm. They wanted to influence policy. And, and uh, so there, Judge Judith Rogers wrote a separate nine-page opinion in, that, in our case, in which she explicitly stated that she read the briefs that were before the Supreme Court in those two cases cited by Kavanaugh. 
And that, she said, the issue, writes the petition, the issue before this court, in this case, was not argued in those two earlier cases. Free speech and press, you know, and, and the right to petition, these are distinctive rights. Clearly distinctive rights. The right to free speech and the right to assemble, the right to freedom of the press, the historical review of the right to petition proves that and shows that those rights derived from the pre-existing right to petition the government for redress of grievances. It turns out, as history shows, in England, uh, what good was the right to petition the government for redress of grievances if you couldn't speak about it, if you couldn't write about it, if you couldn't get together and, and prepare a petition? And so those rights derive from the pre-existing right, as history shows us. But the fact is they are distinctive rights. And, and so Judge Rogers, in her separate nine-page opinion, She's saying these things, that the issue was we were arguing the right to petition was not before the Supreme Court in those two cases. But, this, but you know, I said earlier, we were not meant to rely on the judicial process because it can be politicized. We should be able to petition directly. What happened to us there in the D.C. Circuit in the Kavanaugh Court proved this, the need to restore this right. Because Judge Rogers, as I was reading her separate opinion, I thought I was reading a dissent. She, she was clearly dissenting from what Judge Kavanaugh had written, was saying. But to show the conflict of interest and show the politicization, she, Judge Rogers, filed her separate opinion as a concurring opinion. In other words, she concurred with Kavanaugh. What did that mean legally? What did that mean? It meant we were not going to be successful in getting the Supreme Court to hear the case. If the, if the, the court was split, Kavanaugh on one side and, and uh, Judge Rogers on the other end, I don't know who this third guy um, then there would be a split decision almost assuring the Supreme Court would hear the case. But in filing it as a concurring opinion, the opinion was unanimous. Very hard, especially on something as, as uh, electrifying as restoration of the right to petition. Hey, Bob, I just uh, yes. uh, we're going to open it up for comments and questions. Could you answer a simple question here, because I, I, I asked this to you the last time we were talking. Could that case that, that uh, apparently a dissenting opinion been misfiled as a concurring opinion, uh, namely a, an administrative fraud on the court? Could, is that at all possible? Um, you know, I, it never occurred to me. I wouldn't imagine that happening as a mistake. 
a, a purposeful mistake, Bob. Purposeful. Oh, well, well, <laughs> on its face, on its face, it was as you a purposeful mistake. I mean, it, it, was, it clearly reads as a dissent. In fact, now that I think about this again, she went on to say, because we had laid out in our papers a thorough historical review of the right to petition, going back to the Magna Carta coming forward, all the six principal clues as to the meaning that they're obligated to respond. My God. So we had laid that out. This, our papers really had this thorough historical review. And she said in her papers, in her separate nine-page opinion, that this, that this historical review should resonate with the U.S. Supreme Court. As, mm-hmm. as it usually, as historical reviews usually do. She even went that far. But then it's mm-hmm. filed as a concurring opinion. And we asked the Supreme Court to hear it, of course, and, and, uh, and they said no. And that was such a, well, yeah. it was, uh, it, it just, um, anyway, it, it, it was devastating. I don't know what else to say. It was devastating. Um, hey, Bob. Uh, yeah. Just real quick, is if Rose is still awake, I want to give her a shot here. I don't even know if you're still awake, Rose, but if you're on there, you were on the pre-show, or, or Al Jordan, or anyone out there, a comment or a question for Bob as we uh, wrap up tonight's call. Rosie is sleeping. Can you hear me? <laughs> Bill. Hey, Bill. Yep. Rosie is sitting in her rocking chair, sleeping. Okay? As, as of about two minutes ago. Uh, but I'm awake. I, you've had my attention, Bob. Yeah, it's really, um, it's very, I, you know, gosh, uh, it's very hard to hold people's attention. Uh well, I reminisce about a lot of that, so I I understand. Yeah. You know? Well, uh, I don't know what to do about that. It's, um, you know, I've got a preface of a book written. Uh, I've got an outline of a book written. Um, but it's it's really hard to, especially the details of, you know, of the case, um, you know, unless... It takes a special person, you know, with 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 experience of of in the law um, that to, to stay, you know, to, to hold their attention. Uh, oh, maybe, yeah. uh, maybe I shouldn't have, Fred. Maybe you should have uh, interrupted as I started going through the details of the case, but. In any event, no. Yeah. This is this is the shortest period of time you covered the greatest amount of information, Bob. I thought you did a hell of a job. I mean, <laughs> you were able to. I mean, normally this this the last time you went through this much information it took us five shows. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, well, I think you've done a good job. I think you've done a good job. But um, and just so you know, I wasn't sleeping. I was just rocking with my eyes closed and listening. There you are, Rose. All right. Thanks for coming back on. 
I knew she right. wasn't going to admit it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I, I'm hoping uh, before my days are done that uh, we'll see uh, that this that citizen vigilance uh, will. Um, that, the, that the institutionalization of citizen vigilance will get underway. You know, this we just had this 1.6 billion dollar mega million. Uh, oh, Bob! You know, I bought, I I bought thinking, a raft. I bought a raft of tickets, hoping it would pay, it would pay off. To I was thinking. I was thinking. You know, I was thinking. You know, you, you wonder, God, what would you do with that? Well, I know exactly what I, I would do. I, I could, I, we could build, I don't know if people know, uh, remember our plan for institutionalizing citizen vigilance. Uh, we would have these constitution monitors all over the place, paying attention, attending uh, meetings, uh, on board city council, county, state, federal meetings. and. They would have some working knowledge, not expert on you know all the laws, but uh, they would be comparing what their government is doing with what with, with the prohibitions and mandates of the Constitution and and the laws, and then where they saw you know a conflict, they would petition for redress of that grievance. And depending on the response, those monitors would send the petition and the response to a citizen vigilance center in their state, near their state capital. That citizen vigilance center would architecturally look be identical to Monticello, Jefferson's home down in, in Virginia, I think he designed. And so in that building, there would be a team of people familiar with the law, attorneys or whatnot, to it. who would uh, then investigate this violation of the rule of law, these violations that are coming in to their citizen vigilance center in their state, and then they would recommend a course of action, legal or civic, for the membership to engage in. And so all across you know, the town, if it's a town issue or the county or the state, you would have these members who didn't have the time uh, or talent you know, to, to be on the front line, so to speak, at the monitoring you know, the behavior and preparing petitions and the like, but who have one thing in common. They want government held accountable to the rule of law. And they're, they're on the mailing list. They're paying attention. And when the call goes out, they know to get their windbreaker, their charity response team windbreaker, and get out there and do what's called upon. And, and whatever the... the uh, remedial action, you know, recommended 
by the folks in the Citizen Vigilance Center turned out to be. Um, so that's uh, that's what's required. And I, gosh, uh, I don't know what we do, Fred, Steve, you guys. I, I don't know what we do uh, to get that underway. I have a question. Yes, I have a question for you, Bob. Yes. Um, as I hear what you've presented, uh, uh, you you are sounds... resonating. You're, you're reverberating oh, on your sorry. phone. Could you back away okay. from your phone a little bit? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, as I hear what you're saying, it sounds to me like uh, the supposed concurring opinion of Rogers did not concur. And I wonder if there's any way of writing to her personally to uh, request clarification, because it seems like it was more that her position agreed with you rather than opposed you. Yeah, as I say, as I was reading her, her separate opinion, that I, was, I thought I was reading a dissent. She was clearly dissenting, but she didn't file it that way. And uh, I don't know. I, uh, I I took that as clear evidence of the politicization of the judiciary. Think about it. Think of what's at stake in in that decision. Oh, I hear you. What's what's at stake with a restoration? of the right to petition, there would be such a tremendous shift of power, raw power, from the government back to the people where it was meant to reside in the first place. Where it does reside, yes. Where it does reside, yes. I hear you. Yeah, and so she, in the end, God bless her, she went as far as she did. She hit the nail on the head, you know? But then in the end, I don't know what pressure, uh, she was torn. And and I don't know what pressure she was came under, but, uh, you know, they, they just couldn't bring themselves to, you know, to, to support a restoration of the vestigial right to petition for redress of grievances. How how people can, you know, Kavanaugh's decision was Supreme Court has ruled twice, government doesn't have to, is not obligated to respond, uh, and therefore you don't have the right to retain your money until they do. Obviously, my view has always been if government doesn't respond, and and is stepped outside the boundaries, drawn around its power by our Constitution and the laws pursuant thereto, then what, and they won't respond, or our repeated petitions have been answered only with repeated injury, which is what's happening, then why fund them? Why fund them? See? And, and that's, that's what, what they were faced with, and they just couldn't... Um, you know, so so how can anyone 
especially Judge Kavanaugh and, and the judges on that bench, how can anyone say what it doesn't mean without telling us what it does mean? Think of that. Mm-hmm. Oh, it doesn't mean yeah. that. Excuse me. How can you tell me that without, t- without telling me what it does mean? What does it mean if not that? Absolutely. It's just wrong. Oh, boy. You know, we filed every congressman, all members of Congress, all 535, plus the president, plus the chief justice, they all received among the four petitions, they all received the petition dealing with the Iraq resolution which was served on them, we, we had the, uh, the uh, Freedom Drive gathering down on the National Mall in, on November 14th, uh, 2002, five months before we went into Iraq. I was there. Think about I remember it. remember when we were fasting. Had they responded, then, then we would have uh, had debates on the floor of the House and Senate and all the tough second and third order questions would have come up and would have been addressed. All these things we were hearing about. Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. He was friendly, which wasn't true. He was friendly with Al-Qaeda, which wasn't true. They were enemies. All that stuff would have been debated. And we probably would not have gone into Iraq, which means ISIS wouldn't have been formed and all those other things that have happened since then. You know, uh, sure, the guy was a dictator. Sure, but he kept the peace between the Shiites and, you know, between the warring factions there. As Washington said in his farewell address, be friends with everybody, trade with everybody, but don't take sides and these internal disputes, you know. Um, but think about it. What would the world be like today had they responded to that petition for redress of grievances? You know, what would the world be like today had they responded to the petition for redress of grievance regarding the USA Patriot Act and those terrible provisions that allow them to come into your home, my home, and copy our hard drive without ever telling us they were there, you know, and all the other surveillance that's going on. Anyway, uh, what would the world be like if we followed the provisions of our of the rule of law, beginning with our Constitution, state and federal? We could have a whole other show about what's going on in New York and probably your states regarding your violations of your state constitution. Hey, Bob, before you get off... Bob, I still have a question. It still wasn't answered. Uh, Is that... um, Does this... uh, Justice Rogers still... Is she still alive? You know, I don't know. I haven't followed that. Uh, I assume she's still there. Well, but... yeah, that was only, um, what was that? Uh, uh, he issued his decision in, 
early 2007. Uh, so we uh, we argued before him before him in probably 2006. So anyway, it's been a few years, but she was, as I remember her, she was not very old. I mean, I, I guess she's still there. Well, so, look, my, look, my question yeah. is: there is there an appropriate way to approach her for a clarification of how this is a concurrence with Kavanaugh's position? Yeah, I think if an indi individuals and in small groups have a hard time prevailing in situations like this, uh, what one normally does is they file a motion for reconsideration, bringing up this issue. For instance, uh, I suppose you know I've thought about it since then. I probably should have. Uh, I don't know if I did. No, usually I, I exhaust my judicial remedies and I file uh, motions for reconsideration, but I may not have done that there, um, which would have, you know, been a mistake on my part, I suppose, which I, we would have addressed that issue. But, you know, if she gets a letter today from someone asking her to explain this dichotomy, uh, she is under no obligation to respond. I understand. Uh, yeah, but if there was a lot of noise, <laughs> uh, you know, if if uh, uh, then maybe. <laughs> but it we could always institute a writing a writing campaign in support of the well, black I, people. I, I, I agree. She has some explaining well, to do. This this sounds like it was fraud on the court. The, the the clerk of that court misfiled that opinion as a current opinion when it was in fact a dissenting opinion. So uh, the power of the politicization of that office through the use of the clerk, the simple administrative action of a clerk. Yeah. Well, well uh, it's a matter of yeah. As I say, my my considered opinion is that in the end, uh, there was so much at stake. Yeah. It threatened entrenched power. Think of the power yeah. that the mm -hmm. judiciary has today and the electoral process. Uh, this, this threatens that entrenched power. And in the end, uh, I think that's what, uh, gosh, I think all the papers were, if I could say so, were brilliantly drawn and uh, the historical review uh, was so thorough um, to come up with these two irrelevant cases. Um, that, that's a to me. That's just a real black eye on the judiciary. Uh, you know, they're we're not public employees. These yeah. are not on-the-job related employment-related grievances. We're not trying to influence policy. We're trying to hold people accountable for violating the, the Constitution. Judge I mean, Kavanaugh carried a lot of dirty water there, Bob, unfortunately. Yeah. 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 That's too bad. But anyway, we gave it our best shot. Yeah. Um, Anybody but, else a comment or a question for Bob? Because he's been on here a long time, and he's <laughs> we're so grateful, Bob. You've covered such a huge amount of material in a condensed hour and 40, 40 minutes. So 
Uh, Al Gordon, are you still with us? You want to get one one peep in, Al, if you're on? No, I, I'm, I'm on. You know, if I could add, I'm sorry, is, is Al there? Yeah, I, I'm, there he is. I'm not um, I guess despite the facts and despite the logic, the conclusion that the, that you come up, come from with the courses, they already have made the decision before you even walk in the room. And so basically they try and fit the the fact pattern to a conclusion they've already drawn before you even come into the courtroom, uh, whether or not the logic or the, the facts uh, fit or not. They're going to make a decision even if it's irrelevant. Like, don't you see this over and over again in the courts all over the country? Not just in the, in the, in the courts in Washington, D.C., but even in the state courts and the local courts do the same thing all the time. Yes, I have a, I've assembled, uh, I've been um, holding government accountable since, uh, trying to, since 1979. And I have um, a book upstairs with 197 decisions in cases I've brought uh, since 1979, it, uh, decisions by appellate courts, federal and state. Uh, years ago when I started, uh, I had tremendous victory setting constitutional precedent here in the state. But as time went on, I've seen huge changes. Uh, in the judiciary, uh, I agree with you. Um, it is highly politicized, and um, to our great, great, great detriment on these political questions. Um, and and the, the founders knew this. They they that's why they put those words there. Uh, and you see it that. You know, and would you not would, would you not say that the election of Donald Trump was a not was an unarmed civil revolt against the conditions that are created by the government that the people didn't have a specific grievance but they did have they knew that they know there's something wrong and yet and, and that's why they voted for Donald Trump and this and this and the the fight from whatever the empowered base is is still going on because the empowered base will never let go and that they've managed to gain the minds and souls most of the media, with the exception of one big station, which is bigger than all of them now. Um, it seems to me that way anyway. That, that election was a civil revolt. It was, it was disobedience. It was, it was unarmed civil disobedience by voting for Donald Trump. No, I agree. Uh, people, uh, there was an underlying uh, feeling that something's wrong. Uh, there are those who knew the truth or felt the truth um, and, and those who don't care. Um, that's that constitutional divide that I'm talking about. I've seen it. It's been growing, you know, and, and uh, what's the result? Uh, an upheaval, another big upheaval in this country? Um, this, this level of vitriol, it's... It's uh, it, it's out of control. Uh, violence uh, being openly talked about and and encouraged. 
it's wild. Um, yeah. So it's it's getting worse. It seems to me to be it's a downward spiral, and and um, and and I think it's all about power. And uh, the power, the ultimate power, uh, is supposed to rest with the people. That's America. Um, and it's 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 been. The government has been arrogating more and more power. A slice at a time, we've been losing our freedoms. A slice at a time. And people are fed up. I agree with you. I think this this presidential election was an indication. People are fed up. Um, And this lack of civic education we have a, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that we have this law in New York State. Well, OccupyTheConstitution.org is it's one of our websites. And we have put up there petitions for redress of grievances dealing with some of the problems that we're experiencing today. And if you look at the one called uh, Public Education, it's a petition for redress of this grievance, this this lack of civic education. And, uh, you know, we put them up there and we say, you know, it'll do, we'll put this up here until maybe a million people sign it, or at least a lot of people sign it, and then we'll get it served. Uh, it's been up there, those petitions have been up there now for a number of years. Um, I've been so busy, and, you know, they've, Last year, our organization, because they got me out of the box, they got me tied up here doing, you know, just exhausting me with one issue after another. It's, um, look at the, the case number is those who have PACER accounts. Look up the account 15CV1299. That's, that's our case, my current case, Schultz for the United States. And the amount of documents that the, the, the document sheet is up to about, I don't know, 230 documents have been filed by the two sides and the court over the last uh, four years or so. Um, we've, I'm so tied up. And, and so the organization, you know, has... Uh, is down last year the income was two hundred and twenty two dollars. I think you know from we were so well on our way to institutionalizing citizen vigilance. Judy and I here were volunteers for all those years. And it was really growing and we were really getting somewhere and I guess it just shook them shook them really, you know. They, they just had to, as I say, target us for financial ruinization. But where all the pieces are still there, it's just that I'm trying to get back at it. Anyway. Hey, yeah. Bob, I just wanted to say, uh, 
I forgot to mention at the start of the call, Dee Dee Farrell could not be on the call, and she really was sorry, but she wanted to say thank you, God bless you, and uh, on behalf of Dee Dee, who couldn't make the call, uh, her heart and her soul is with, with us tonight on this call. She will be listening to the archives, so I just wanted to make that note. Well, thank you. We love her. Oh, Betty, Betty, I hear your voice. Go ahead, Betty. Yeah. Great to hear you, Bob, and I wish there was something we could do about that. That Betty, case you know, is so screwed up. Yeah, Betty, God love you. You know, in reviewing all these documents, boy, you were there. You know, you oh, were yeah. there uh, requesting all of these documents, and you show up everywhere, you know. Well, all I was, the, it was the thousands of people, you know, that were involved. And, and putting all these documents together, making copies. Gosh, Matt, can you imagine making three copies of 7,000 pages uh, in a little hand-fed copy machine here at the office? Uh, I, I don't know whether you realize. I didn't know whether you realize it or not. I was with All County Taxpayers Association too. What? I, yeah, I, I, that, I started out with you with All County Taxpayers Association. Wait, you lived in New York. I got one of the, your your uh, newspapers. Wait a minute. Yeah, we we were publishing TJ's perspective. What would Thomas right. Jefferson have to say about the issue right. of the day? Right? And we I had got 50, copies. <laughs> fifty. We put out fifty copies at fifty months, one a month for fifty um, months. But you were uh, you were living in New York State at that time. Oh yeah, I was in Newburgh, right. New York. Oh, for heaven's sakes. <laughs> oh, for God's sake. And I, big, I did that big fair that time. I, I think that was in, when I was in New York. You did what? I, I, I set up at that big uh, state fair that time. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, it it yeah. was like two weeks long. <laughs> uh, so when we held the... Uh, you know, the, 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 the founders here in New York, including John Jay, the, the people who wrote the U.S., uh, the New York State Constitution, they were on the run. You know, the British were after them. Um, and and they, they kept running, like, uh, eventually got to Kingston. And where yeah, they actually, that's where it started. Finished, yep. Yeah, they actually finished uh, their work on the... Only two uh, months, though. Only two months in Kingston, I heard. Yeah. Well, they were on the run. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really after them. And, and so we had a big event at, at the, what they called the Senate House in Kingston. Uh, I don't know. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. Um, I was dressed as Jefferson. Judy was just, uh, dressed as Martha. Yeah. And we're up yeah. on the balcony talking to everybody. I don't know if you were there for that. but Yes. Yes. <laughs> you were yeah. there, Betty, in Kingston? Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. I've been my wife and I had done the tour of the buildings in Kingston. Oh for heaven's sake. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, we went to a costume place and got wigs and everything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that. I remember it. Yeah. Yeah, but, but isn't there any way it isn't there any way uh, be, but because it's judicial that uh, they wouldn't be under the Freedom of Information Act? No, you couldn't. Some power that you can't that 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 does that doesn't cover them, right? No, yeah, it's really uh, uh, it, no. I I don't think you could. 
whatever you got would be so so heavily redacted, I guess. But no, they, they you can't make them answer for their decisions in that way. I, I don't believe. Yeah. But if a lot of it would take a lot of noise, you know. But I don't, you know, uh, I have mixed emotions about Kavanaugh and his confirmation hearings and so forth. Yeah. Uh, what they did was totally uh, reprehensible and uh, uh, bringing all that stuff up and the mob mentality, all that stuff. It's just so bad. Uh, but it does show just how politicized the judiciary is when you think oh, about yeah. it, how far people will go to keep you know their guy out or their guy in. Um, I, but, but he made... The, this wrong decision. These were clearly irrelevant cases. Yep. But, you know, it is he what was, it is. He, he was given the dirty deed, Bob, to get it, to get it done against uh, our heritage. Yeah. And um, I hate to say that, but he was young at the time, and uh, he was an up-and-coming judge with a glowing reputation. Uh Serving under Bush, and and perhaps he was just told you you got to get this done. And, but frankly, uh, I don't wow. know. Uh, but when I came to the conclusion that the issue was just so powerful, complete restoration of the right to petition. Wow, yeah. wow, so much at stake for both sides, the government and the people. Would there be any judge who could um, who could say yes? They're obligated to respond. They were obligated to respond to those four petitions. And if government doesn't respond to these proper petitions, and we defined what a proper petition is, um, that the people could retain their money. Wow. You know, I mean, not take up arms. It's a nonviolent solution, you know. As part of the historical review, I know we're almost out of time, but as far as the historical review, um, after 11 years of, government, you know, not responding to these petitions, the, uh, there was the first Continental Congress of, 2000, uh, of um, 1774, <clears throat> two years before the, the uh, Declaration of Independence. And, and the framers then got together to decide, you know, what can we do about this? The fact that our petitions aren't being answered. And we have these real grievances. Um, and, and one of the documents, if, if people Google Continental Congress 1774, there are a lot of resolutions and declarations and so forth, but one of them is called the uh, Continental Congress uh, to the Inhabitants of Quebec. And in there, the, it's an eight-page document signed unanimously by, by all the delegates. Uh, to that Congress, and by the way, that Congress is the same Congress that guided us through the Revolutionary War, guided us through the Articles of Confederation, and eventually uh, gave us the the, uh, the the Constitutional Convention that gave us our current Constitution. So, but in that document, they said this: uh, when when government wants money from the people, and they have in any manner oppressed the people. The people may retain their money until their grievances are redressed. Um, without, uh, uh, until their grievances are redressed, and thus peaceably procure relief. In other words, it's a nonviolent solution. 
peaceably procure relief without uh, relying on the despised petitions. You know, the government yeah. showed that we they despise these petitions, and without disturbing the public tranquility. Brilliant words. And that's what freedom really means, you know, holding the government accountable, the people peaceably holding the government accountable, respectfully. Hey, you're doing this. This is what you're prohibited or mandated to do. Now explain yourself or else. You know? Gosh. You know, Bob, we've heard a lot, and I'm just going to make this closing comment, and then we'll uh, – but so we've heard a lot about all of these release of the deep state documents with the Russian collusion investigation or non-investigation. Uh, you could argue – maybe we could all just settle on something. The last ten words of the, of the First Amendment, uh, as a result of – the failure of, of Kavanaugh and company to uh, correctly rule upon that petition, uh, that lawsuit on behalf of we, the people, those last 10 words are redacted. <laughs> we need to get the unredacted meaning and, 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 and power back from those words. They're still redacted. They still are out of touch, out of reach. No one talks about them. Well, they're they're sealed a, off they're from, a, yeah, they're from the people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you're right. Uh, I don't know how to get there, though. It's, well, it, it's going to take some creative, inspirational memes, uh, songs, uh, uh, maybe in the next generation, Bob. But uh, the water that you've carried and all of us have carried, it's not for naught. Uh, the prayers are still with you, with this cause. Uh, and I just wanted to say uh, thank you for coming on the call tonight. It's been a full, full two hours. Rose, thank you for staying up. Al, thank you for chiming in. Betty, God love you, Betty Smith. Sorry that Dee Dee couldn't be here. And uh, Let's Bob, get one of your documentarians interested. We need to do that. James Yeager is the one that I would. I mean, we've had James on this call many times, and he is a crack documentarian. Uh, we need to fire up his his uh, his inspirational uh, mind, heart, and soul about this because this really is the key to everything. You know, immigra- I mean, immigration is a, is is one of the hot button issues today, right? Yeah. And yep. uh, the laws aren't being followed. Uh, yep. You know, corporate America is hiring a lot of these people, and they shouldn't be, and they know better. You know, they're not properly vetting them and and so forth. But uh, a petition for redress of grievances regarding the uh, immigration issue just might get a lot of attention. And, and you know, it, it, uh, change the law, fine, but don't ignore the law. Don't violate the rule of law. Yeah. Uh, or, you know... We have now, that sounds brilliant, Bob. Of another of another petition, but on that hot button issue. Oh my God! Yeah, a lot of people would sign on, and <clears> that would really be a big home run. And nine eleven lawyers have uh, the petition served uh, um, sent to the Department of Justice to see the grand jury. So that's going to be very interesting because they're going also by redress agreements. Okay. They're following that, Betty, the redress approach? Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
Okay. Because as, as Bob stated on this call many times and through the whole research, Bob, for the record, a, a, a proper petition is simply a listing, what's called a bill of particulars, which is a listing of facts. Admit or deny fact one. Admit or deny fact two. All the way down the list. Yes. And uh, the receiver of the petition can either respond with facts that overwhelm and negate your facts to override your well, facts, re- yeah, refute or the can facts. admit them. Yeah, refute the facts off your own, but don't ignore it. Yeah. Well, the, on the 9-11 thing, they have something that the Department of Justice must see to grand jury. So that's what their whole case is about. So here are yeah. the facts. I think, if I'm not mistaken, it's not on OccupyTheConstitution.org, but if I'm not mistaken, I did a a petition for redress on the um, immigration issue. I'll see if I can dig that out. You could dig that up, Bob, and send it to us uh, by email. I would pass that around. That sounds very simple, very powerful. Yeah, it's all in the interest of the rule of law. Hey, if you don't like the law, change it, but don't ignore it. Yeah. Don't violate yeah. it. Thanks. Corbett re- report, when something really gets, you know, organized with that, Corbett report would be another one to get it, get the Which report. one, Betty? Which one, Betty? Corbett report. Uh, James Fred Corbett, Miller. we had him on a couple of weeks ago. Bob, he's a really great researcher, documentarian, but he uses the Internet exclusively. Uh, through YouTube and and these other platforms, but he does an incredible job in his research and is just very professional in his approach. Uh, Well, got to get a uh, a group together and figure out what we might be able to do. Then you put it it on AIM, American Intelligence Media. Oh, yeah, those guys guys are great. (laughs) Yeah, we need to get them in touch with Bob. Well, listen, Bob, Judy... Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in tonight on this historic call to have Bob back after a long, long absence. And uh, please keep keep we the people uh, and Bob and Judy in your prayers, uh, the adjudication, the finalization of this court case, and the next chapters for this this journey that Bob and all of us have been on. Uh, it's 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 ongoing, and uh, it's for the cause of truth and liberty and peace in our world. Bob, again, thank you so much for coming on. Betty, Al, Rose, Bill, and everyone tuning in tonight. It's been a great show. And uh, that's a wrap. Thanks again, guys. God bless you. Good to wrap it up. Bob, we'll send you you the link of this. We'll send you the link later on. All right. right. God bless you. U.M. American Underground Network. Bob, you there? Yes, hi, Betty. I just want to make sure you say hi to Judy for me. Oh, I sure will. Yeah, yeah she's got Give her a big bed. hug, Bob. Give her a big hug. Yeah. yeah. I will, too. Yeah. All right. I'm heading home, right. everyone. Thank you. Thank See you, you later, Betty. Thanks, Good night, Steve. God bless everyone. Okay. Bye-bye. Good night. Good night.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.